I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that's blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 106, which along with Psalm 109 are the Psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, February the 16th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Um, You can hear that I'm still not 100%. (coughs) Getting there, though. I'm not going to worry about it. Um, It's just one of those things. Sometimes you have to just work through it. And I'm one of those guys who actually got a cold and not COVID, so... That's good news. So we're continuing to look at the prophetic words of Isaiah today in chapter 63, verse 15, through chapter 64, verse 9. First Timothy, uh, chapter 3, the first 16 verses, primarily that is about um, the qualifications for overseers and deacons. Uh, that are raised up in the church. And then in the gospel, um, Mark's gospel, chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. So there's lots and lots of um, verses <laughs> to deal with today. So let's start with the Isaiah passage. Look down. He's, this is a plea from the prophet and the nation to God. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. So what he's saying is, is that, that we need you. We need you to come and act on our behalf. And we're not seeing you do that. For you're our father, though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. So the plea is made that that we've become a byword and we've become lost. No one seems to even recognize that we're here or care about our plight. Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? He's confessing sin. And, and sin begins with this fear you not because that way, if, if we don't have the fear of the Lord, then there's no restraint on our conduct. There's no restraint on the things that we might do. And so this hardening of the heart, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Does God cause people to uh, wander from his ways? How does he do that? What does it look like that he would do that? And then what does it mean so that their hearts are hardened? And I recently listened to a rabbinic teaching on on that with respect to Pharaoh. And what it said was is that actually what God's doing there is strengthening Pharaoh's heart, strengthening his resolve to do what he intended to do, to carry out the plan that he had, um, and, and so that he would persevere through the plagues. And, and it's exactly what happened, and the point of it was to— uh, get them into a place where God's glory could truly be revealed. And, and in the plagues themselves, his glory was revealed because he was revealing himself to be greater than the gods of the Egyptian, beginning with the Nile. So that was the whole point of hardening Pharaoh's heart so that all their gods could be exposed. And ultimately then, Pharaoh is a god. Well, if if your god drowns in the sea, it says something very interesting about your worship system. 
so he says, he pleads and says, Lord, why um, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. We're just lost. We're, we're immaterial in the world because we don't have our God and we don't have our place. We've lost our sense of who we are and whose we are. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. That Those two images are, are shot through so many psalms that David wrote, and that's exactly what he wants God to do, is come in power. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that's the reason he wants him to come down. And that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence in times of old. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. We know who you are. There's no one like you. None. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time and shall we be saved. You can hear that you can imagine the cry that would go out from this oppressed people who have been taken away from their land and their place, and now they're just a completely dispossessed people who are unwilling to become good Babylonians. They still long for their own home. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So they're covered in their iniquities. It's the reason they're there. Isaiah's not making excuses for why they're there. He knows why they're there. And that's the big point in uh, repentance is is that we confess our sins and and we promise to do our best to turn away from those things, and then we ask the Holy Spirit to help us turn away from those things. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Please, look, we are all your people. So he's his pleading always goes back to the same thing, and that's the covenant relationship that God has with his people. And God has promised that he would not remember iniquity forever, that he would he would turn back to them. And, and Isaiah sees the, the iniquity of the people, and, and it would be easy for him to stand on the outside of all this and say, why is this happening to me? Because I am the one who has, who has pointed this out and has been very clear about this. But that's not the job of a prophet, is not to accuse the people before God. It's to confess the sins of the people before God and to show the people God's righteous indignation and anger against that sin and to attempt to call them back. It's easy in those situations, however, to ignore that prophet. And the reason that it's easy to ignore him is because as long as times are good, then I don't have to listen to you. You're obviously wrong. And, and that's described so many of the times of the prophets having to speak into prosperous situations and try and get the people's attention. And the only way, ultimately, they won't respond to the prophetic word. They will respond to the pain of losing that present situation. In the gospel today, 
we're going to see Jesus. Remember yesterday, he cursed the fig tree because it didn't have any fruit on it. Uh, and it was out of season for the fruit. But here we're going to hear a parable that carries that idea forward. And it's because there's no fruit in the nation. And they came again to Jerusalem, so the next day. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave this authority to do them? And the, the implication here is we're the ones who have the authority to give authority. And the fact that you've come in here now and you've overthrown the tables of the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals is going to require you to show some proof that you had the authority to do what you do. And that can only have come from one of us because we control this temple area. And he said to them, I'll ask you a question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. In other words, was it something John cooked up on his own? Or was God in it? And so the answer is, they discussed it and said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man? Because if they say that, they're afraid of the people. They'd all held that John was really a prophet. So they can't say this, not because they're not going to answer this question honestly. They can't because they know that they're trapped in this thing because what they want is they want to keep the people under their authority. So this is all a question of authority. If they say for man, then the people are going to turn on us and they're going to reject us. But that's what we believe, and we obviously believe it. <clears throat> Jesus said that, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. Ah, you can't make a decision about this. And I've probably told this before. I had a lady on the phone one time when I was at Amazon. And um, this was a, this was 2020, right before Easter. And she was convinced that something remarkable was going to happen before Easter. And we were going to be set free for the pandemic. Well, two years in, it didn't happen. Um, but one of the things she talked to me about was, is, and I don't even know why she brought all this up. She, she, people just wanted to talk and process what was going on. And so what she told me was that she had been listening to Joel Osteen on a regular basis and that she'd been listening to him and bought all his books over an 18-month period. And she said, you know, I don't know what to make of Jesus. Some people say that he's a Messiah. Some people say, you know, he's not. And I don't know what to make of him, but I just feel better when I listen to Joel Osteen. And I said, you know, I hate to do this, but the the reality is it, it makes me sad and angry <laughs> that you've been listening to somebody for 18 months and never felt the need to make a decision about Jesus because it's the only important decision there is to make. It's the only eternal decision there is to make, and so I have to confront you with this because you brought all this up. And, and the problem is is that w people can say we don't know. Having listened to popular preachers, they can say we don't know. They don't, they don't have to commit themselves to anything. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you're not going to answer that question, then I'm not submitting myself to you in any way. And then he began to speak to them in parables. And he tells the parable where a man plants a vineyard, puts a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. He did all the work of setting it up. All he needs is people to come tend it and get the produce off at the, at the end of the growing season. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them to, another, to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. 
And these are the prophets. The parable here, the, the people that's, that, are, that Jesus is speaking of are the prophets. These are the things that they actually did to the prophets. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And the presumption would be that probably the man is dead, and that's the reason he sent the son, after all these others, that, that he has now come to get this, and if we kill him, then there's nobody left. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And Jesus then asked the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come in and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And he's speaking of the nation, and he's speaking about us being given the vineyard. And what are we doing with it? How are we doing in the, with the Great Commission in America? How are we doing with all the freedoms that we've been given and all the assets we've been given? And I mean financial assets as well as tax um, exemption and all the other stuff that we get and we've had for all these years. How are we doing with those things? You know, in, in the main, I would say we're not doing very well with them. If Jesus came and asked for fruit and for evidence of fruit— um, what would he see in most churches? What would he see in most Christians? He says, if you not read this scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Cornerstone. <laughs> this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's a powerful statement that they are going to reject the the one who is to be the chief cornerstone. They're going to reject Jesus. But it's going to be marvelous in the eyes of those who lay that cornerstone. And that's who we are. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left and went away. Not surprising. He didn't make it difficult. <laughs> he made it pretty easy for them to see. This is one of the most straightforward parables you could have ever found. Certainly in situ, after they've questioned him, and then he tells this story. In the epistle, Timothy uh, Timothy needs to know what are the qualifications for people who will serve as elders in the church, and that's exactly what Paul gives him. And it's quite a list. This, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. That's a pretty straightforward uh, list of qualifications. I don't know, you know, would, are there any of those things that people would object to? And the answer is, yeah, they would object to the husband of one wife thing. <laughs> In Rwanda, when I was there, that the la- well, not the last time I was there, but before that, um, I noticed a practice in every church. And, and that is is that during the worship service, there would be a time when the bonds of B-A-N-N-S of marriage would be read for upcoming weddings. And what they would say is there will be these times during the week when you can come and make an objection to any of these. And the reason for that was is in Uganda, it was allowable for a man to have more than one wife at a time. So the the... Monogamy was not, it was the norm, but it wasn't um, the rule. And so the in Rwanda, that was not true. 
And so what would happen would be they would uh, publish the bonds of marriage, and it was possible then that if that person had been in exile in Uganda from the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and 90s, most of the 90s, then it's possible they already had a wife. And so since that was not allowable, in the, at least in the church in Rwanda, then what would happen would be that they would somebody would come and say, well, he has a wife in Uganda, or she has a husband in Uganda. That was way less likely. It primarily had to do with a man. And it's, it was important that they only have one. And it has to do with how, how do your relationships go, and what is the kind of judgment of this person. And so that's that, but that's something that people would absolutely object to. And I can remember in the denomination that, that we were, that we helped start and we're in, um, we had a guy who was a candidate for, um, to become ordained and he had been married before. And so there were two people on the, in the group who said, we, we believe that that, uh, first Timothy thing holds today. And so they would, they said, we have to vote. No, he, he's a good guy. He seems to have talent and all that kind of stuff. However, he's not the husband of one wife, so we can't say yes to that. And and it's a, a strict standard, and it also implies that an overseer can also only be a man. And so it's a problem for a lot of people. But how do we deal with that? How, how do we look at that and say yay or nay? We can't just say it's Paul because it's Scripture. So it's very difficult to get around those kinds of prohibitions and and to do so you have to realize that you're making a decision not to accept that as um definitive at all he said he must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household how will he care for god's church he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil i mean there was a time early on when I came back to the Lord, is the way I always say it, um, I never denied the truth of the gospel. That was not the thing, but I, I just didn't own it at all. It was no part of my life, except for when I would go to church on Sundays. But that was that was just something, you know. I did. Um, so the it would have been easy for me early on, and in fact, I was in a process to get ordained within about a year or so after. Um, maybe two years after I came back, and it would have been a disaster (laughs) had I been allowed to go forward. It would have absolutely wrecked me, and I would have wrecked others too. So I'm just saying that, yeah, you don't want to raise up recent converts for that reason. Um, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so they may not fall into a disgrace into a snare of the devil. It, it seems odd to get import, get input from people outside the church, but it's important that you do because we need to have the people who have the kind of characters that are respected outside the church as well. Um, I worked for a guy who went to the same church I did, and I watched him over and over do things that were unethical. And frankly, it, it skirted the edge of illegality, and this is in an accounting firm. Uh, it but I never had any respect for him, and neither did other people in the community. And But the problem was is that he was allowed to be in leadership at the church, in spite of the fact that it brought disrepute on the church to have this guy in that leadership position. Most people weren't aware of it because he was successful. I happened to work in the firm, so I saw it, and I know exactly what it looked like. 
says deacons, who are, who are sort of a, a lower uh, level of leader, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not given, not addicted to too much wine. So it's not that they have to not drink, they just can't be people who are um, drunkards, you know, the people who are, who are ha- addicted, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they, they've got to be committed to their faith, not, you know, half in and half out. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So give them other things to do, test them, raise them up, and then make wise decisions based on what you've observed. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be husbands of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. So don't be rash about this. Have some standards for the people that you raise up in leadership. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And this is an early creedal statement. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We've all got to to, uh, take care that we don't raise up people in leadership who are going to bring the dishonor on the name of the Lord or the house of the Lord. It's important that we raise up the right people to lead us. It's always been important because where the leaders go, so go the nation, so goes the church. Um, we can we can be um, de- fooled and we can be taken and led astray because we are all like sheep. Like the nation of Israel, when they had bad leaders, they followed that leader wherever that leader went. And here in the gospel, we see the same thing. Jesus says, you've been led astray, and you're failing to produce the fruit that's required of you. You're not giving up what you've been given. It's important that we follow right leaders, and that once we do, that we also choose right leaders as well. 